0: Getting out there into regional areas and partnering with places like football clubs, who you'd expect to be the most homophobic, toxic masculinity, as you mentioned, and I 100% agree with you, but that's why we need to focus on them because they are the biggest part of the problem. So they have to be part of the solution. And when you get them involved and on board, the ripple effects that that has through a local community are extraordinary.
1: That was Jason Ball. LGBTIQ and Mental Health Advocate and Victorian Young Australian of the Year for 2017. My name is Asanga Senavratna and this is Lantern, a podcast about young people trying to change the world, trying to understand what that actually means. June 2016. The Australian federal election campaign is well underway and that's when I first heard the name Jason Ball. The national media was lighting up after the homophobic graffiti Just tagged across his campaign posters that attacked the openly gay candidate, but what's more was that he was rising quickly in the polls to challenge an incumbent conservative parliamentarian in what everyone thought would be a tight race in a traditionally safe seat. And for me, sitting back at home, that was an incredibly exciting time. And not because I aligned exactly with what Jason's policies were, but he was someone young, challenging the status quo and standing up to hatred with love. And sometimes, in all honesty, I can be ambivalent about politics and whether it's the, the best way to enact social change. But I knew who better to ask than Jason. And being a sports and football fan myself, I knew this story was an important one, particularly given the masculinity that surrounds uh, not only local sport, but particularly football, and how we can use and harness this amazing community of fans, and players, Supporters for the good. So, for our third episode, Regan Quick and Yasnaji sat down with Jason to discuss his journey to activism, the challenges of coming out in the football community, the importance of mental health, driving grassroots change, particularly in rural areas, the role of politics and social change, and overcoming stereotypes more broadly. Enjoy.
0: My name's Jason Ball. I am lucky enough to be the 2017 Young Australian of the Year for Victoria. I'm also an ambassador for Beyond Blue, the national initiative to tackle depression and anxiety. I consider myself a bit of an LGBTI and mental health advocate and I was also the Greens candidate in the federal seat of Higgins at the last federal election. So a range of different things and a range of different passions.
2: Oh, fair enough. And I really appreciate the sort of intense passion you've got towards the subject, which sort of makes me feel like it's got to come from somewhere. So what was your sort of upbringing like? Who were your ideological like sort of mentors?
0: I think my passion for equality, I suppose, and mental health certainly came from my own personal experiences growing up. I realized that I was gay when I was 12 years old. And at the time, I thought that that was the worst possible thing that I could be. Uh, The word gay was constantly used on the playground to mean bad or weak or stupid or disgusting. And when I figured out that that was me or at least what other people might think about me, it really crushed me. And I remember making a promise to myself that I would never act on these feelings, that I would go through life, marry a woman, have kids and a family, do all the things society expects of me. No one would ever know about who I really was. And I was just petrified that my family would be disappointed in me, that my friends would discard me. And I went to great lengths growing up to hide my sexuality. I tried for a long time not to be gay. I was hoping that it would be something that would go away. And after years of hiding and pretending, I got to a point where I was 15 years old where I started to think maybe it would just be easier if I didn't exist. I got to the point of thinking about taking my own life and I thought that that would be easier than dealing with the shame or the embarrassment that might come from anyone finding out about who I really was. And my journey though is a positive one because in the end, people didn't think less of me. My friends accepted me, my family accepted me, even my football teammates accepted me. And that was a story that I really wanted to get out there and share because I know when I was younger and struggling to come to terms with who I was, you know, if I had have known, if I had have had gay role models. If I had have known that you could go through life and still be anyone, you could still be an AFL player. You can, you know, still pursue whatever it is that makes you happy. It's not going to put you into a box. Um, that would have made things um, really different for me. And so that was my passion to do things like, you know, challenge the AFL to do more to tackle homophobia. And then when it comes to politics, um, that is kind of the arena where big change happens in terms of policy. And I know that whether it's marriage equality, whether it's uh, exemptions in the Anti-Discrimination Act that allow people to continue to discriminate against LGBTI people, these are the things that need to change. It needs to start at the top, and that was probably one of my big motivating factors to not just be an advocate for the LGBTI community, but to enter parliament to be a voice for the LGBTI community.
2: Oh, I'm really sorry to hear that you had to go through that, especially at such a tender age. You mentioned sort of the lack of gay role models. So, what was the sort of trigger? Like, you mentioned the rut that you got into. So, what pulled you out? What was the sort of inspiration period?
0: In a way, I kind of pulled myself out of it. I kind of came to the realization that. If I only live one time, I may as well do what makes me happy, I may as well be the person that I am and worry less about what other people think about me. But luckily as well, people didn't think less of me. Um, I came out to a girl who didn't go to my high school, she was a family friend, so it felt like a safe bet. Um, and luckily when her reaction was positive, that started me off on a journey towards telling more people and feeling more comfortable in myself. And In a way, growing up, there weren't people like Josh Thomas or Matthew Mitchum or Tom Ballard, sort of these examples of young, happy, successful gay men in the public eye. And so, you know, seeing their examples in whether it's comedy or radio or TV or, you know, diving. I kind of wanted to be that role model within the world of AFL that I wish that I'd had growing up. And playing country football out in regional Victoria, I was in a bit of a unique situation. Um, as, uh, so when I decided to share my story, uh, in a way became the first openly gay Aussie rules player at any level of the game. And in the absence of any elite players doing that, my story kind of filled that vacuum and you know, it sparked a real conversation.
2: Gotcha. And um, before we sort of um, touch on maybe the toxic masculinity of AFL, etc, I do want to mention, you did mention that you were playing regional football. So how much harder, what's the difference between sort of the regional approach to, you know, the LGBTI community versus where you were growing up, which was, was in South Yarra?
0: So I grew up out in the country, in the country I grew okay, up yeah. in a town called Yarra Glen mm. and then moved to South Yarra mm. when I was going to uni, so okay, yes, most so of that. what I knew growing up was out in the Yarra Valley, okay. um, beautiful part of the world, it's only about an hour and a half out of, the, out of the city, so it's not too regional, but Yarra Glen's a pretty small town, about 2,000 people, mm. um, it doesn't have a high school in it or anything like that, mm. and so the regional area is a place where everyone knows each other's business, I think a lot more than metro areas, and um, It's also a place where there are very limited support for not just LGBTI people, but health services in general. Um, You know, we didn't have a GP in Yarra Glen, um, let alone a drop-in center for youth mental health like Headspace or anything like that. So I very much had to travel into the city to be able to access any kind of support. And when I was a teenager, that was in the form of going along to events organized by a group called Minus 18. Um, which you may have heard of. They're um, a fantastic network supporting LGBTI young people under the age of 25, whether it's through online support and forums and chat groups, um, but also having events like the same-sex formal, which they put on every year. Um, you have a lot of young people who don't get to take the person they want to to their school formal or can't wear the clothes they want to at uh, their school formal and just in general don't feel like they can be themselves at their school formal. And so Minus18 put on the Minus 18 School Formal, where anyone can come, take whoever they want, be whoever they are, and just feel safe and celebrate what is kind of a rite of passage for many young people going to something like a school formal. And so, going to events with Minus 18 um, was the first time that I actually got to meet other young people who were like me. I didn't know anyone like that in Yarrow Glen. It was also in the days, you know, before. You know, smartphones. Um, So the best we had was MSN Messenger when it came to. It might be before your generation, but (laughs) okay. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, it was a different time back then. It was hard to connect. It was hard to find other people who were like you. But I certainly sorted out, even to the extent of. You know, going down to libraries and ordering in books that had storylines that were about gay characters and gay narratives because up until that point, all I'd ever read about and heard about was straight people and straight storylines.
2: Yeah. I'm really happy that despite the difficulty, you still sort of managed to access some services. And so I can see why you have that sort of passion for getting services further out. So I grew up in a place called Warpy Up for a while, which is pretty much town of like a hundred people. Um, and you know, being like an Arabic person right after 9-11, not easy for my, definitely harder for my siblings than it was for me. And just being able to, being that only person in that area is so difficult. So, what do you think you can do to the people who are six hours away from the city? What sort of thing would you think of to try and get as much support as you can to those sort of areas?
0: Well, because I found so much help online. I know that that's a huge thing, being able to allow people to connect online and also, you know, creating really great content and stories, which is something that Minus 18 do, something that the Say Schools Coalition focus very heavily on doing through the All of Us resource. So for me, you know, great content, great storytelling, great support is actually available online now. Most young people are connected to the internet. They're connected to it 24 hours a day. And often the time that they need help is a time when your local GP is not open. Um, You know, it's a time, um, and, and for young LGBTI people, it's often, you know, not something that they often feel comfortable talking to their parents to who are more likely straight. And so, you know, it's not something that they share in common with their parents, which is say something from someone from, you know, a different cultural background might be able to confide in their parents because they might understand what they're going through. For LGBTI young people, they're like 100% on their own. Um, And so that online support, I think, is really important. And the other thing that I've really focused on through my work with sport has been getting out to regional areas. So events like the Pride Cup, um, which we founded in Yarra Glen, has gone on to... Um, uh, be held in Glengarry out in Gippsland and Taraugan. It's uh, in Hamilton out in Western Victoria. Next year, we'll be going to Shepparton and Dalesford. And so getting out there into regional areas and partnering with places like football clubs, who you'd expect to be the most homophobic, toxic masculinity, as you mentioned, And I 100% agree with you. But that's why we need to focus on them because they are the biggest part of the problem. So they have to be part of the solution. And when you get them involved and on board, the ripple effects that that has through a local community are extraordinary.
2: Yeah, I think you raise an extremely important point, especially in the more regional areas. And especially, you mentioned Hamilton, which is quite far out. You know, the football club is the meeting place for the whole community. Um, And so that being said, it's also a culmination of a lot of the good and negative elements. So how do you come in and try and get them to reform the very negative elements while not making it out to be like you're an intruder trying to sort of attack their culture or community.
0: I think the way that I've been able to connect with other football clubs is because I myself have a story that is about football and that relates to football and I can speak the language of football. I'm not the LGBTI community trying to impose its agenda on the AFL and community football. I'm coming as someone who loves football just as much as you do and and had a story where I considered stop playing, stop playing football um, because I couldn't deal with the homophobia in that environment. You know, the use of words like faggot and pufta and homo, whether coming from over the fence or coming from the opposition or coming from your own coach or your own teammates. That is the kind of language that made me feel like if anyone in my football club found out that I was gay that I wouldn't be accepted and I thought I wouldn't be able to play footy anymore. So it was either stop playing or be in the closet and hide your fo- hide your sexuality as much as you can. And I chose the latter, which was incredibly, incredibly exhausting. Um, you know, second guess- second guessing everything that I said, Um, thinking about the way that I walked, about the way that I talked, not getting involved in conversations about relationships or what I was doing on the weekend. Like, it completely limited the kinds of friendships and bonds that I could have developed with my teammates. And, And I had even gone to the extent of creating a separate Facebook list so that just my football teammates wouldn't see photos I was tagged in, places I was checked into, or what my relationship status was. And, you know, that... Experience is something that, you know, people in a football club, they can put themselves into your shoes when you tell that story. Mm-hmm. And they can also put themselves into the shoes of my teammates. And when I go and talk to a, a sporting club out in Tauranga or Hamilton, I often talk a lot about my teammates and how they reacted to me so that there are role models in my story that they can relate to. I talk a lot about the first time that my sexuality came up in conversation with one of my teammates. Um, I would have been about 22 years old and I had made a promise to myself that if I ever got asked about it that I wouldn't lie. Um, you know, Lying hadn't gone so well in the past when it came to making up stories about girls. Firstly, I had no idea what I was talking about. And secondly, it's exhausting to maintain fabricated stories but when... I was in the club rooms after training one night with one of my teammates and he had broken up with his girlfriend. And he, uh, we were chatting about it for a bit. I asked him how he was doing, what happened. And after a bit of back and forth, he put it back onto me and he said, oh, you know, what about you, Bolly? Aren't you seeing someone at the moment? And I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing someone. And as much as possible, I would use words like they and them instead of he or she to you know, be honest without, with, by also getting around the elephant in the room. And my teammate just said, well, what's his name and my heart started beating really fast I thought maybe he was testing me and I just said his name is James my teammate said well has he come to any football matches yet and I said no he hasn't and he goes well you know you should bring him down it'd be really great to meet him and this was just a moment where like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders and it turned out you know, after 10 years, there was only so much that I could hide within my football club. Um, it turned out that someone who I went to uni with was working on a building site with one of my teammates and, and, they, wow. and they found out. And so, But all the fears I had about how they were going to react to me weren't realized. And one by one, conversations like this kept happening in my football club where they would kind of reach out to me to say, we know that you're gay and it's not a big deal to us. And I kind of came to understand that a lot of the homophobic language coming from my teammates when I was growing up, wasn't actually coming from a place of hatred towards me or towards people who were gay, but it was just coming from a place of ignorance and not understanding the impact that that language was having on one of their own teammates who they needed to, you know, play at his best. And that approach as well, in terms of not calling anyone a homophobe or going into a football club and saying, you are bad people, Mm -hmm. is the other thing that gets them on board. Um, It's the other thing that makes them realise, well, you know what, I'm a good person, and i don't want to cause harm and to learn that this use of homophobic language is not only the thing that is keeping 10% of the community away from our football club when we're struggling to field a team we're struggling to get sponsors and members and you know supporters Uh, but also that this behaviour contributes to the fact that LGBTI young people are much more likely to experience an issue with their mental health or even contemplate suicide. Um, It makes it very real for them. Um, And I think it made it very real for my teammates whose homophobic language faded um, not long after that experience of coming out. Um, And similarly with other football clubs where I have gone in and shared my story and I've talked about the challenges that LGBTI people face when it comes to participating in sport, but also all of the benefits that can come to a football club if they create a more inclusive culture that welcomes diversity and celebrates that. Um, and whether that's diversity for different sexualities, gender identities, or you know cultural backgrounds, um, our indigenous community, um, Languages, um, disability, gender. Um, There's a whole spectrum of people that football clubs are realising are their new market, but it's going to require a whole lot of culture change for them to reach them.
2: Yeah, um, I think sort of my last sort of question on your sort of coming out series. Really, you know, it hit that people knew when you were 22. What do you think the same result would have happened if the word had come out when you were 15? Do you know what I mean? And I think, and you did mention mental illness in the youth in particular. At a time when people maybe are not as empathetic, what can you do in the very young tender ages where the words can hurt a lot more?
0: I think that if I were to co- had come out when I was 15 or 16, I think it's very likely that my teammates would not have had the maturity mm. um, that they had when they were in their 20s when I was playing with them in senior football at Yarra Glen. Um, And I don't necessarily think that young people who are in that sporting environment should come out Mm -hmm. and then that will be the thing that will transform the attitudes of the people around them. It very well might. And you'd be surprised these days how accepting people can be. But I do actually think the onus is more on... The rest of the players in that team to cut out the use of homophobic language. And you can do that in a range of different ways. Um, You can do it by going in there and sharing, you know, heart wrenching stories of people who had been almost driven to suicide because of their experience of, you know, um, kind of accidental, unintended homophobia. Um, Or you can do it through humour. I don't know if you've seen the latest ad that came out of New Zealand recently where they kind of uh, challenged the use of homophobic language by. Literally saying, if someone says something is gay, well, it's like, well, what do you mean it's gay? Are you meaning it's attracted to members of the same sex, or and then you know, and then pointing out that oh, anyway, it's a funny ad. You got to be there. You got to watch it. Um, but you know, that's usually an approach that I might take when I'm talking to young people. If they say that book is gay, I'm like, well, what do you mean? The book is the book attracted to other books of the same sex? If they say no. I'm like, well, do you not have the vocabulary that you can't think of another word? You know, like. Um, uh, you know, there's different approaches, um, and I think maturity levels are definitely something to take into consideration, whether it's a young person or whether it's an adult. But the other thing is that, as you said, young people are in those kind of formative years as well. That's a time when they, more than anything, they just want to fit in. Um, and so to be different at that age is really tough, um, regardless of how much acceptance you, you can find from parents or friends, um, it's still tough, um. But that is why I think we need to see schools and sporting clubs actually being proactive and visible in support of the LGBTI community. It's not enough just to say, don't use homophobic language. Um, we actually need to do things like having a Pride Cup where we paint our 50 metre line rainbow to show support for the LGBTI community that those young people can feel included and accepted and welcomed.
3: And what's it like when you are speaking in those schools? Do you find there's a difference between, say, if you're speaking in a public school or, say, a very religious private school? Like, is the perception different or is it more same old, same old between the kids?
0: I've found surprisingly that, regardless of the school environment, it's had a really great uh, response. Oh. and. And that is even from going into some of the most conservative, religious, all-boys schools, whether that's St. Kevin's in Toorak or Melbourne Grammar or Brighton Grammar. Yeah. I've spoken at all three of those schools, and I've had some of the best responses from those schools. Um, after speaking at Melbourne Grammar, the students were actually inspired to hold a pride game of their own, and um, it was actually organized by um, you know, the captain of the football team and In the assembly leading into the game, um, the vice-captain of the school actually got up and came out to his entire school um, during assembly. And he talked about his twin brother, who was the captain of the football team, who had driven the organization of the Pride game. It was just this really heartwarming moment Mm -hmm. of the the football guys um, being leaders in their school and showing support for their mate who had come out um, to them. And his own bravery to come out to his entire school will, like, leave behind a legacy for other young people at that school that he won't even realize yet. And, you know, this it doesn't always happen easily either. It's not always a smooth road. Like, those students who pushed for that got some pushback from their own school. The school had said that, you know, um, uh, if you want to have a Pride carp, oh, we can't do it because, you know, we can't get the jumpers made. and. The students went out and found a sponsor to make the jumpers. And so they went ahead and the school said, look, we can't do media and promotion for it. So the boys secretly filmed the assembly where Rich came out and then uploaded it onto YouTube and then they were all on Sunrise the next day. So, you know, the creativity um, of these young people, it's a testament to them. Um, But also, you know, they didn't take no for an answer. And there's a real generational divide here where young people have grown up in a world where this is visible and there is just no issue for them. Whereas our parents and our grandparents grew up at a time when it was illegal to be gay. And there was shame and fear and hiding and silence about it. And so it is just such a divide that we see at the moment. And I'm so inspired by young people. And all you need to do is just give them an idea like a pride game as a way to show their support and they'll do it.
3: And you did mention the importance of not giving up on like typically people you wouldn't expect to be behind the message like, you know, football clubs and all that. How do you take that approach when we're focusing on the older generation who as you said come from a place where it was illegal and shameful and that like how can we kind of bridge the gap with them
0: Look I I take the approach and I mean maybe it's naive but I don't think anyone is out of reach in terms of being able to change their mind I think you have to have that hope that anyone with the right connection um you can change their mind but I'm I know that it's not going to be through Evidence or rational argument that's going to get them to change their mind. It's going to be because of a personal connection for them, say a family member or someone they know coming out to them and it becoming a real human issue, not something that is just theoretical or abstract or a stereotype in their head. Mm. Um, And so I find for me, just going out there and being myself and talking about the fact that I play football and I'm gay, that breaks down a whole lot of stereotypes in their mind, and they, up until then, might have never met a person who was gay. And I know for a lot of my teammates and a lot of the people in my club, including the people from older generations, until they'd met me, they hadn't met a gay person. But once they do, all of the stereotypes, potentially their you know, discriminatory views, they, they evaporated because it wasn't some you know, as I said, idea in their head. It was a very real person with a name, with a face. They know that person. They like that person. They're a good person. And that's the thing that transforms attitudes on this particular issue, I think.
2: I think you make a really good point that I think, and that's maybe something that some campaigners need to realize, is that you can't really win through rationale, unfortunately, because there just is none for the opposing side. Why do you think that's so, because for example, I think a lot of what, you know, the gay community is going through right now is very similar to, you know, civil rights from, you know, 30, 40 years ago and what Muhammad Ali had to go through, etc. But the fact that this is legal discrimination, just like naturally like that, why do people sort of not see the pattern and the similarities with what's come before in other forms of discrimination? Do you know what I mean? Where's the difference between race and being, feeling different?
0: Well, there isn't like yeah. in, in that sense. And I think that You just have to look at history repeating itself again and again and again to know there's probably not going to change anytime soon. Like in, you know, 30 years' time, we'll probably be reflecting on some of the things that we do right now that are completely unethical. Whether you look at like the production of food and factory farming and stuff like that, um, when we have probably in 30 years' time, we will be able to um, create meat in a lab without torturing an innocent animal um, and that and people will look back at the days when we had factory farm um, food production for the planet and just think what was wrong with people how are we so blind to think that this is a living creature that feels pain and suffering but we're willing to put it through up note you know misery just for our own convenience because we can't be creative enough to have a vegetarian diet or something like yeah, that yeah so,
2: so basically <laughs> your sort of your sort of moral is. You know, you just have to keep pushing and wait until people are going to be receptive to the message because people don't really have any foresight. Which I I think people don't know their history, like they
0: don't. And until people do do something, like go to a university and learn history and Mm -hmm. learn about, you know, their own the struggles that have come before them, it's actually really hard to put the current day into context. And I think that's the power of studying history, but unfortunately not enough people do it.
2: Yeah, well that's a great segue then. So you've pretty much already figured out why you wanted to study um, history, but why would you want to come to Melbourne? Why do you want to study history? Longer explanation and etc.
0: Well, at, I did a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Melbourne, so. The humanities was very broad, and basically, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I finished high school. So, I just studied the things that I was interested in, knowing that I would do best in those studies because I genuinely want to learn. Like, I want to learn for learning's sake. I find it exciting. And so, I studied things like political science, history, and philosophy of science. Um, I did cinema studies. I did some, you know, global international relations um, subjects. And, you know, that. Awoke in me my my passion to create change in the world, and uh, also being a bachelor of arts, a lot of people would critique it as not having practical job ready skills. Um, but for me, the fact that you know my arts degree gave me kind of a worldly knowledge and also the ability to write the ability to communicate like all of those things have actually served me so well um you know in the early stages of my career and hopefully you know well beyond that
3: did you find that in university it was a space where you felt you could really for the first time be a lot more open with your sexuality? whether it be because you not with say your country town or like because you moved or was it Just the culture in university and stuff, or was it just as bad?
0: To be honest, I still found it hard, even at yeah. university. Like, I am um, any in any situation where you're meeting new people, you have to make a decision whether it's safe or not to come out. And to be, you don't can't read people's minds, you don't know what their religious views might be, you don't know what their background might be, or where they've grown up if that's been in cosmopolitan Melbourne, or if it's been in you know the middle of nowhere, and, and often those you judge people based on that information and that can often lead you to statistically figure out whether or not they're going to be homophobic or not. And that's exhausting to have Mm -hmm. to go through that checklist with every person you meet. And you might only get a split second where you might meet someone and they might ask you a question like, do you have a girlfriend? And, you know, that kind of heteronormative assumption Mm -hmm. has put you in a position where you have to either lie or you just avoid the truth or you come out to them. And, you know... And, and often I found myself just, it's just being easier just to go along with it. And I went along with it to the point at one point with one of the girls who I was sitting next to at, at university that like, I got to the point where like, we'd even got like, I think what she thought was a date. Um, and <laughs> I've never shared that before, Dave. but it came back to me. Um, um, was, was um, no, like the poor girl and, um, she eventually figured it out, but like I was, <laughs> a, I think I just like the attention, but I, um, <laughs> um, like it was, you know, uh, even at the University of Melbourne, yeah, yeah. even in this cosmopolitan, it was still hard, but mm. I think even a lot of things have changed at uni since I was at uni. We, mm. the, the University of Melbourne has since marched in Pride March, for example. They didn't do that when I was, um, at university. The only... LGBTI representation I saw was through the um, queer uh, department at the Student Union, which was a very kind of radical, you know, queer, you know, um, representation of the LGBTI community and not something I necessarily related to. Um, they were kind of far beyond where I was at at that point in my life in terms of feeling comfortable with my own sexuality, letting, let alone going out there and hitting the streets and you know, demanding uh, to, you know, destroy heteronormativity in every part of society. Um, And so I didn't get super involved with the, you know, the queer wing at the University of Melbourne. When I was here, I was more interested in, you know, the University of Melbourne Secular Society and I was a treasurer of the Film Society and I was getting involved in stuff like that. And, you know, at the time I was still, um, you know, my sexuality was something that, you know, I didn't open up to, to very many people. And it's changed a lot now. It's something that I feel very comfortable in a new job or whatever to, to tell people because I can deal with a negative reaction if I get one now. But at that young age, when I was 18, 19, it's something I was still learning.
2: So you mentioned the secularist society, you know, like me personally, I love the secularism stuff, like Lawrence Krauss is one of my heroes, every time he's on Q&A, he's amazing, you know, you're Christopher Hitchens. So where did that sort of come from? I mean, I'm sure there's some crossover with, um, you know, what we've been talking about, but what's your passion for that like, and where do you think that leads you?
0: Well, where that came from is another interesting story, and it goes back to when I was in high school, and... I went on student exchange and I decided to go to the United States when I was 16 years old and I was situated in the state of Kansas, which is like the buckle of the Bible belt (laughs) of America. And so I didn't grow up with particularly religious parents, although I'd gone to a religious school, I kind of thought that God existed, but didn't really think too much about it. And when I was placed in this situation in Kansas where they went to church every week and youth group and, you know, I was happy to go along to those things um, because going on exchange is about experiencing a different culture and that's what they did over there. But I was, you know, the first youth group I went to and the first thing the youth pastor said was that the earth was about 6,000 years old and, um, you know, I... hadn't paid a lot of attention in biology when I was at school but I was pretty sure I was older than (laughs) 6,000 years old like and so this was the start of me having to for the first time figure out how I make sense of these bizarre claims that I was hearing and that was when I discovered science as the best tool and process to figure out the reality of the world that we live in and it was weighing up science compared to say religious dogma which is how they were interpreting the reality of the world and i found that through studying history science has really always won that debate whether it's is the um you know is the earth the center of the solar system does the sun revolve around the earth and copernicus and all of those things constantly we have found out what's reeling the world through evidence and observation and curiosity not through what's written in a book or interpretations of that. Um, And so that's basically when I came back to Australia, my eyes were, um, you know, kind of open to the impact that fundamentalist religious groups were having in Australia Um, and very much kind of under the surface. I didn't feel a lot of people knew about it or could, could really see it happening. Or I thought that they were kind of, taking advantage of Australia's kind of relaxed attitude, like, oh, you know, Mm. she'll be right, mate. And so we get to a position where we have hundreds of millions of dollars funding chaplains to be in schools, and most people just shrug their shoulders. Like, it's not causing outrage at all. And I'm just like, this is messed up. And so when I got to Australia, I just wanted to find other people who felt the same in terms of felt strongly about these issues And actually wanted to have conversations about whether God existed. Is the Bible the word of God? Is evolution true? And, you know, I thought the answers to these questions mattered. And so that was when I got involved in the Secular Society at the University of Melbourne. And I helped uh, found the Free Thought Student Alliance where we created like a network of such groups on university campuses all around Australia. I spoke at the Global Atheist Convention back in 2012. So that's kind of another part of my activism and involvement in the community that might seem really disjointed to LGBTI and mental health activism, but, you know, it's just all part of wanting to make a positive difference and seeing that you're in a position because of my own personal experiences and what I've been through that I, you know, that's where the passion comes from.
2: Yeah, I find, and I think it's funny that you mentioned you you mentioned the word dogma, which I think is really important because maybe even the pursuit of you know enlightening people regarding atheism is that it could even be harder than other like forms of civil rights activism because the effects are less tangible, right? Like you know you have the great atheist thinkers who are like you're entitled to arguments, not opinions, you know. Um, the best thing of a scientist is to prove another scientist wrong and that's what makes it good. Yeah, that's a virtue. Yeah, that's a virtue, right. So, But it does make us look a little bit prickish. Do you know what I mean? As opposed to, like you mentioned before, with you know, with the LGBTI pursuit, it's really easy to bring a personal story. But now we just said before that people don't respond very well to evidence or rationality.
0: I think that's what I've learned was yeah. the biggest problem with why the atheist community wasn't getting through there is because people generally don't connect with evidence or reason. It doesn't matter how right you are, yeah. the way you go about it is what matters the most. And if you get more enjoyment out of being right, Um, which I found many in the atheist community (laughs) seem to do, like, that is the problem. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I found that, you know, even though I enjoyed the debates within that community, I didn't necessarily connect with all the people in that community. I felt that they weren't necessarily always there for the right reasons, although a large chunk of them were. Um, And, you know, from a political perspective, you know, I think things like separation of church and state are, are really important, but I didn't see... Them necessarily being achieved through a fringe lobby group, um, but more so, it needs to be on the agenda of the major parties in Australia. And so, being part of a major party in the Greens, I saw as the biggest party who I actually shared values and, and common interests with, um, was the way to go about it.
3: I guess reflecting on that exchange trip that sort of sparked this um, journey to secularism and atheism more generally, because um, that could have gone either way. You could have just loved it, uh, like lapped it all up so what made you question it more than just blindly be i guess controlled by it
0: i think it part of it was my own curiosity for what was true like i think that really matters to me and i didn't care what the answer was Mm -hmm. what i cared was was what was true and so for me to see so many people who have the best of intentions Out there causing a world of damage and pain in the world Mm -hmm. to me is just the most ridiculous thing Uh, and so you know my I think my first approach was to try and enlighten people to realize that hey guess what God doesn't exist so uh, it's really up to us as human beings to be compassionate and figure out our own morality and ethics and through you know humanist principles but at the end of the day I've learned that we're going to get more done if we can form coalitions um, with people of faith um, who we can create bridges to and form connections on common causes. So realizing that there are people of faith who in whatever way have found a way to reconcile sexuality or say abortion or you know a whole lot of really important ethical considerations with their faith the only reason that we're going to be able to get all of those people who are currently on the other side is to not tell them that they have to give away their faith because that's going to be something really hard to do. We have to help them connect with people who, through a theological reason, arguing from a position of faith, can tell them that actually being gay is not a sin by denying the rights of LGBTI people that's actually against your faith. Um, That's really the best way to actually win, I think, in terms of the goal of, say, LGBTI equality.
3: Another thing that we should probably touch on before we run out of time, because uh, you mentioned mental health advocacy throughout, but I don't think we've specifically touched on it. So you said you were with Beyond Blue at the moment as an ambassador, is that
0: correct? Yeah, I'm an ambassador for Beyond Blue. And so you've probably heard of them. They're the um, National Initiative to Tackle Depression and Anxiety. And ambassadors for Beyond Blue don't have to be famous or anything like that. They just have to have a story that relates to mental health in one way, whether that's depression or anxiety or suicide, and be willing to go out and share that story with communities uh, in in order to raise awareness about mental health issues, help people uh, understand the signs and symptoms of depression and anxiety so that they can seek help and understand that those issues are treatable and that there is hope for recovery, and it's also a really great way to, you know, break down stigma around mental health. We in Australia, we think about mental health very differently to how we think about it as in terms of physical health, but we shouldn't in a lot of ways. We think about, you know, if you break your arm, like yes, you should go to a doctor and get it fixed, but if you're experiencing depression, we just tell people to snap out of it. You'll be right. Well, they actually might need treatment and therapy in order to get better. But A lot of the time, and this is particularly problematic for men because of stereotypes around gender and what's expected of being a man in Australian society, that you're not allowed to show emotion, you're not allowed to be vulnerable, and this makes men in particular less likely to reach out for help and then more likely to spiral out of control if they do have a mental health issue, and it's why men are up to two times as likely than women to um, suicide
2: I think and I think your work with Beyond Blue is up with probably one of the most important things that you do do um, and being somebody who's you know sort of experienced the same sort of stuff and I actually work in a mentorship role at my public school. Um, you know, just talking with kids who it's normally, they call it bad dads basically. So just people, cause it just so many issues come down to that. Um, but I think what's really difficult is once again, it comes to the formative years. It comes to 14, mm-hmm. 15 year old. People have no problems talking about their anxiety when they're maybe 18, 19 and have the introspection. But when people are feeling bad and they don't know what it is, or even that they can label an anxiety, mm-hmm. how do we really get into the youth there mm-hmm. to change that?
0: Yeah, well... That's, I mean, what you've touched on in terms of being able to name it, um, that's very new. Um, You know, our understanding of depression has grown within the community considerably over the last 10 years, a lot of it because of the campaigning and the awareness raising that Beyond Blue have done. They have just in the last few years started on anxiety in terms of you've seen some of the great ad campaigns on TV that have been running and, yeah, everywhere. Um, You know, anxiety and depression are now words that people know, people know what they are, and then they're more likely to recognize those signs and symptoms in themselves or in a friend and therefore hopefully more likely to get help. And we know that when it comes to mental health issues, they are much more likely to develop in those formative years. And if you don't get treated before the age of 25, then you are much more likely to have a life where you are completely debilitated because of mental health issues. It means it's much harder to get a job. Um, It's much harder to participate in the community, to have stable housing and much more likely to end up sleeping rough on the streets. So it's crucial to engage with young people um, uh, when it comes to mental health and that's why organisations like Headspace have been founded. So you create a brand that is known to young people and that is accessible to young people. Um, You have centres where people can drop in anonymously without necessarily having to talk to their parents being able to connect online. Um, You know, one of the things that there's a lot of stigma around mental health is that people might think that you're weak or that there's something wrong with you and that this is a problem. But being able to actually notice that you're experiencing these issues and reach out to, you know, online in an anonymous capacity is actually, you know, hugely increasing the amount of young people who are actually seeking help at a younger age.
2: Yeah, no, I completely agree and I think especially when you brought up the naming stuff, I think that's very true in that people now are a lot better at saying, I'm feeling anxiety or I'm feeling anxious. Mm -hmm. I think what I noticed a lot in high school was maybe a dismissal of people when they said I had depression. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, no, that's, you know, you might be feeling depressed, but it's not serious, you don't have a mental illness. What, do you, what can we do about that? Because I feel like the awareness has been raised, but how do we mention the severity?
0: Well, there is a difference between uh, experiencing anxiety and having an anxiety disorder. There is a difference between being depressed and having depression. And that's kind of the nuance, I think, that we're needing to break down and get into now. Um, everyone knows what it's like to experience, to be depressed or to have anxiety. We've all experienced anxiety, but the problem with an anxiety disorder is when you experience that anxiety at a time when you shouldn't. Um, which means that, you know, you might not be able to go outside because you experience so much anxiety um, that you would usually experience in a time when, you know, as a caveman, we were all being hunted by a saber-toothed tiger. You know, this is completely out of whack and means that you can't function properly. Depression, on the other hand, is something that it is prolonged. So we're talking more than two weeks is when you are feeling so low and you don't want to do anything and you're unproductive, for that really extended period of time, that, that is when it's time to go and see a doctor and talk about it and get assessed and hopefully get some treatment. It could be medication or it could be you know cognitive behavior therapy or other therapies um, You know to be able to move past that. But there is a big difference with people feeling a bit down. We all feel a bit down sometimes. Um, and depending on how resilient we are, often uh, can be how we can bounce back from those things. In the same way that everyone has a physical health, also everyone has a mental health. And so everyone needs to understand that we can all have good days and bad days without mental health, in the same days that we can have good days and bad days without physical health. And at the same time, we can actually do things for our own mental health to keep ourselves fit and healthy in terms of our brain, in the same way that we go to the gym or we exercise or we run and eat well to do things to support our physical health. And these are things like, you know, whether it's mindfulness meditation, whether it's how much sleep we're getting, the kind of food that we're eating, all of these contribute to our mental health and gives us the resilience to be able to bounce back when something really bad happens in our life, which can be circumstantial. Um, or if we don't have, if we don't practice these things, if we don't focus on that, then we can actually get into you know prolonged depression, um, which can be two weeks or even longer, and you know really um, disrupt someone's life.
3: So really awesome stuff in that space. And we are got about ten minutes left. So before we sort of wrap up, I do want to bring because I think we have to bring it up eventually. The plebiscite side for yeah. Like it, it's often in the room. I think if you if you're comfortable speaking sure. about it. I guess yeah. Thoughts on it is has it just created more because Even today, there's another no message. Um, sky, yeah, 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 written on the sky yeah. again, which is just it sickens me when I see things like that. So,
0: um, I think we are in a terrible situation, but we're going to make the most of it. Is sort of the, the I think the attitude that the LGBTI community have had to take in this. This was never something that we wanted, and all of the warning signs were there before this was forced upon us that what we're seeing right now in terms of the spikes in people reaching, reaching out, the, the um, just absolute wrath of hatred from the No campaign mm-hmm. every day in the media, um, you know, is there as we were warned. And so the best we can do, and there were people talking about, well, should we boycott this process? Should we not be involved in it? Because it is such a um, problematic you know proposition to be voting on human rights to create this really unhelpful false dichotomy of an even debate like there's two sides to it sometimes there's just not two sides to a debate you know and we did the no campaign have been given this like undeserved legitimacy in in this process in a big way um and credit to some of those media organizations like The Guardian who have actually said, well, there's not two sides of this debate, so we're not gonna report the other side. Um but you know that said, I think it's really important that we do get out and vote, and that we do get out and vote yes, because even though this postal survey is completely non-binding, um, in that regardless of the outcome, it still doesn't We don't get marriage equality at the end of it. Um, We still have to have a parliamentary vote, which is exactly what we needed even before the plebiscite. Um, So, you know, the problems with this postal survey is that not only is it completely unnecessary in terms of legislation and politics in Australia, but it's incredibly wasteful when you look at the amount of money that it's costing, $122 million, like that's not insignificant. Think of what that money could have done in terms of feeding the homeless or cancer research or literally name it. And it would be better than flushing it down the toilet in this postal survey. And it's inequitable too. Um, and it
2: targets people that specifically are more likely to vote no. And you know,
0: the yeah. the and not to mention the damage that it would have, and I have no doubt is causing um, on the mental health and well-being of the LGBTI community, um, particularly our young people, particularly same-sex families, and particularly, say, the transgender community who are bearing the brunt of most of the attacks right now from the No campaign. You know, the No campaign aren't aren't even talking about marriage. They know they've lost that argument. So they're going to try and draw a long bow and attack gay parents. They'll attack transgender kids and try and, you know, completely move the debate somewhere else. And the challenge for the Yes campaign has been, well, do we go and argue those points? and And then we're actually... Are we conceding that they have a point when they talk about these things because actually don't like changing the marriage act has nothing to do with say schools coalition there's nothing to do with transgender rights it has nothing to do with gay parenting and so we're trying to just stay focused on talking about marriage equality but at the same time all of these groups out here are getting needlessly attacked um, and we can win those arguments because we're you know they're also wrong when they say that gay people shouldn't have kids or that you know transgender people you know don't exist Um, They're wrong. And we can go out and argue that too. And I think that's probably going to be the biggest collateral damage of this campaign. And it's going to be the biggest pivot in the history of pivots that we'll need to do, is to go out and make sure that after we win marriage equality, we do actually fight for them and and look after them. Because right now they've been, um, I think in a way, ignored by the YES campaign and for strategic reasons, because we just want to win the bloody vote. Um, and we know that as soon as we go and have those discussions, it'll give legitimacy to the idea that the, the vote is actually something to do with those things. Um, but at the same time, you know, the LGBTI community is a community of different groups. And, and, and we need to look after the trans and gender diverse community and, and same-sex parents and rainbow families as much as we need to look after, you know, the teenagers who are gay who want to one day get married.
2: I think as well what's scary is, you know, we're mentioning the yes vote, we just need to win. What's scary is that the CEO of Roy Morgan Research yesterday said before the plebiscite 80% of people probably would have voted yes, and now it's whittled down to 60 So we're still going to win, but they've taken a chunk out. Does that slow down progress?
0: I think this pleb- the postal survey was always going to slow down progress. That was its point. Yeah, that was yeah, why yeah. they're doing it. It is, a, is an opportunity to delay and distract and to pump as much fear and misinformation into the community to try and turn the tide of public opinion. That is why we were like, no, this is rigged. This is a trap. We're not doing this um, from the outset. And so potentially, yes, it's going to slow down progress. Um, But you know what? I think it's going to be the thing that really undoes this government because I think that the amount of young people who have enrolled to vote just to vote on this survey, they will also be voting at the next bloody election. Mm -hmm. And they won't forget that, that this unnecessary, wasteful, damaging, divisive, Thing that they put the most vulnerable people in our community through come the next election, and so Malcolm Turnbull might think he's doing it to save his prime ministership, but I think it's going to be the thing that undoes him.
2: Yeah, and they've enlarged what's really a fringe issue, like especially for the electorate in 20 years. This is something that's just yes, that's going to happen, and in doing so, they've distracted attention from things that the Liberals conventionally get, um, you know, well reception for, like jobs, etc., which is complete bullshit, but. They've distracted, they've, they've gone pivoted away from their strengths, which is, you know, social issues is never something the liberals are good at.
0: Or being, like, fiscally responsible. Like, how yeah. responsible yeah. is flushing 22, $122 million down the toilet?
2: Um, and
3: just one last thing on the plebiscite, because I always hear, like, it's okay to say no campaigns. How do you respond to that? Yeah.
0: Well, like, it is okay to say no, but do you really want to? Do you really want to be on the wrong side of history? Like, history is watching right now, and we will look back at this moment And all of those people who are posed in the photos for, you know, it's okay to say no, will be remembered in the same way of those people who held up photos saying that women shouldn't be allowed to vote, Mm -hmm. that we should have segregation and I don't want to go to school with a black person. You know, um, this is the bottom of the barrel in terms of attitudes in society Um, and they are starved for relevance at the moment and they are getting one last go at it with this postal survey And hopefully, um, if we can get a resounding yes vote and we can show young LGBTI people that they do matter and they should hold on because equality is, you know, around the corner and that the majority and enough Australians, you know, care about them, um, that, you know, we can finally put this to bed.
2: Yeah, fair enough. The whittling of the straight white man over history. So just before we finish up, and since you're so well read, um, you know we've got to ask it: is there like any books, movies, whatever? Being a film person as well, is there anything that you think you could suggest to young change makers who want to make a difference? Yeah, Imagine yeah, you've got yeah, a few, general, yeah, any media.
0: When it comes to media consumption, the actual I am a massive advocate for a couple of publications. Um, one is the Saturday Paper. I don't know if you've ever read it. Um, it's published by Schwartz Media. It's a weekly newspaper. comes out on a Saturday brilliant long-form journalism paid for by philanthropy not through murdoch or you know the government or anything like that and i think that is the future of media in a way like it's going to be a user pay system now that the the rivers of gold from classifieds have have evaporated from from media we need to find another way to get good journalism because like democracy doesn't work unless we have good journalism and so whether it's a saturday paper um which is a weekly thing or uh, same publisher, but The Monthly, which is a magazine. Um, and on top of that, if you want even longer things, they publish what's called The Quarterly Essay, which is um, yeah, four, four of those a year. Um, amazing deep dives into politics, policy, society in Australia. Um, it's the best reading of politics, culture and society, I think that you'll find. And they've also just launched a podcast. So all oh, your yeah. listeners, I'm sure, would like podcasts and their podcast is called The Lucky Country. And they a few episodes in. It's a good listen. Cool.
3: Perfect. Um, so I know we've touched on heaps of topics, but is there anything else we had burning to bring up or
0: we Oh gosh, no, I'm not I'm trying to think of a good way to wrap it up. Yeah, we but, might have um, missed the boat
2: a little bit on talking about safe schools, but we probably don't <coughs> have enough time now, unfortunately. But,
0: yeah, look, yeah. I'll I'll um a bad. if <laughs> well, we probably will I come can soon. we can do that in <laughs> episode next. Um yeah, look, no, just um thanks for having me. It's it's great to meet young people who are passionate and want to talk about ideas. When I was at university, I started a podcast with my mates. Um, It was all about secularism and science and skepticism and stuff like that. And so, you know, we were really proud that we had, you know, a pretty big listener base at the end of the day. And it was actually what I cut my teeth in having debates and trying to communicate well. And so good on you guys for what you're doing. And I hope your listeners enjoy it.
1: Thank you so much for listening to our third episode of Lantern. That again was Jason Ball and you can find more information on his advocacy work as well as the titles and resources that he mentioned in our show. If you did enjoy the show, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help us grow and share these amazing conversations with more and more uh, people across the globe. If you can't wait for more, episode four will be live across all our platforms in just two weeks' time on Sunday on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Pocketcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up to date um, with the latest content we're pushing out across our social media, so that's Facebook, Instagram, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter, which are all under Project Lantern underscore. So that's one word, Project Lantern underscore. And of course, on our website, projectlantern.com.au. If you have any feedback for us at all, or just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at any time on our social media or via email at hello at projectlantern.com.au. Again, we're so happy to have you on this journey in creating a global launchpad for youth-led social impact. Till next time, stay awesome.